Well, Leslie Baines, it is a real pleasure to be talking with you uh, on Blogging Heads, on Meaning of Life TV for the SOFIA program. Um, it's, it's traditional for us to do introductions, so why don't you introduce yourself first, and then I'll go, and then we can get started. Okay, great. I'm Leslie Baines. I am an associate professor of New Testament and Second Temple Judaism at Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri. And my main area of specialization is apocalyptic literature. I do a lot with the Book of Revelation and One Enoch and things like that. But I've also loved C.S. Lewis my whole life. And when Missouri State University asked me if I could teach any course that I wanted to teach, what could I teach? And I just took a gamble and I said, how about C.S. Lewis? They said, yes. So that is where my scholarly interest in C.S. Lewis began. Well, I am a prof I'm also a professor at Missouri State University in the philosophy department. Uh, I should tell everyone that Leslie and I have known each other for quite a number of years. Um, she start you started working at MSU after I did, and I sought you out because, in addition to my philosophy degree, I have a degree in uh, history as well, and I specialize in the ancient uh, Near East, specifically Second Temple period. Um, studied under Peter Machinist, um, who's now at Harvard, and uh, it's a it's a major area of interest of mine. And so when I when they hired you, you were someone I wanted to talk to and become friends with because you work in the area that. I, I my I'm interested in although my interest is my level of understanding is relatively amateurish as my degree is only at the bachelor's level. Um, why don't you just for a minute um, talk a little bit about we're going to talk about the C.S. Lewis's famous liar lunatic or Lord argument. Um, but why don't you just talk for a minute about the work you're doing on this um, um, and also. Uh, you you're, you're, you went and worked at State at the Kilns in Oxford. Why don't you say a few things about that? Okay. Well, last fall, I had a sabbatical, which is a wonderful thing to do. And I wanted to spend the sabbatical working on this book on C.S. Lewis and the Bible. And when I emailed a friend of mine, Michael Ward, actually, who wrote the book Planet Narnia, asking him if there were any opportunities in Oxford for someone on sabbatical, he said, well, you can apply his home from uh, about 1930 until his death. He died in the kilns in 1963, after which his brother Warren lived there until his death about 10 years later. Then the house was sold. Then it fell into disrepair. And a group of C.S. Lewis aficionados decided to try to buy it and to make it into a study center. So they eventually ended up doing that. And now the kilns, in addition to being a place that people can visit, you know, on tour, uh, they have scholars and residents there who can stay there anytime from a week to a year. And the kilns is about a 20 minute bus ride outside of Oxford University. And it's wonderful, you know, because you've got a living room and dining room and kitchen and fellowship with other people. It was a great base to work from while researching my book. Um, let me just tell the audience. Um, Leslie is uh, uh, transmitting from uh, a horse farm out in, in, in the sticks, which is why sometimes her internet is cutting out a little bit. So please uh, bear with us. Um, uh, so let's focus on on the topic at hand today, which is the, the liar, lunatic, lord argument, um, which I got a preview. I guess this is a chapter from the book that you're going to be publishing. You gave me a preview of this chapter in which you talk about the argument. Is that, is that, am I correct about this? This is based on a you chapter. Are correct, yeah. Okay. So why don't you, first of all, tell us what the liar lunatic Lord argument is. Um, and if you cut out, I might ask you to repeat something just in case, but okay. go ahead. I may ask you to repeat some things too, because you're cutting out quite a bit. I, I can get what you're saying, but there might be a point when I don't. So okay. I apologize for internet connection. We'll, we will um, manage. Go ahead. We'll manage. The liar lunatic Lord argument might be most famous in Lewis's most famous book. And what I'm about to say may surprise a few people, but that would be probably the lion, the witch and the wardrobe. So a lot of people have read this book and they know that a little girl named Lucy stumbles into a wardrobe while playing hide-and-seek and goes into Narnia. She comes back out and tells her siblings about Narnia, and they don't believe her. 
And her two elder siblings in particular are very concerned about her mental state. So they go to the professor whose house they're staying in, Professor Kirk, and they tell him about Lucy. And he says, well, is she mad? And he says, well, anyone can tell by looking at it that she's not mad. Uh, is she someone who tells the truth? And her siblings say, well, yes, she is. She's never been a liar before. And then he says, well, then there's only one other alternative. And that is that she's telling the truth. Logic. What do them in these schools? Right. <laughs> so that's the simplest and probably most well-known rendition of the argument. But the next most famous one would be in his other famous book, Mere Christianity, where he sets it out regarding Jesus. So is is let me just ask you quickly, does the lion is the lion the witch in the wardrobe earlier than mere Christianity? Um is that the first place he makes this kind of argument or well, he, mere Christianity first was given as a series of radio broadcasts early in World War II and then was only published in the early 1950s. And The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe came out in the 1950s. So I guess I'd have to say that mere Christianity was first. So he probably said it, he, he said it in the broadcasts. Yes. But it may not have been published until roughly the time or maybe even a little after Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe came out. Um, so go ahead and explain what the argument is, how the argument goes with respect to Jesus. How the argument goes with Jesus? Right. Okay. So he says that Jesus went about saying that he was God or the son of God or something similar. And he says that there are only these three alternatives about Jesus. Either he was a lunatic and Lewis said, on the level with the man who thinks that he's a poached egg, uh -huh. or that he is evil, wicked, like a devil of hell, or he is who he says he is. And Lewis wants the main point of the argument to be the next part that I didn't treat in my work, and that is that no one can call Jesus a great moral teacher and not accept the claim that he said he was the son of God. In other words, you can't say he's a great moral teacher and not say that he was God. And I'm not, like I said, going for that part of the argument. Right. Just looking at the first premise, Jesus went about saying that he was God, because if that premise is wrong, then the whole argument fails. Right. Right. And my premise is that that premise is, is wrong. Yeah. So, one cannot argue from Lewis's use of scripture in the liar, lunatic Lord argument that Jesus is God. But let me just say right now, I am not saying that Jesus is not God. Right. <laughs> I'm saying that his rendition of the argument is not sufficient to prove that Jesus was God. Right. I think that there are other, other reasons for believing that Jesus is God, but this isn't one of them. Right. Um, and um, I guess the, for the sake of disclosure, so everybody knows where we're coming from, um, you actually are a Christian, and so this is part of your worldview. Um, yeah. I'm Jewish, so it's not part of my worldview. Um, but we're looking at this purely from a standpoint of the argument itself. And in your case, you're not even interested in the argument in terms of its philosophical soundness. You're interested in, in Lewis's use of the, of the New Testament, and particularly the, the gospel literature, uh, am I correct in that? That's correct. I'm not a trained philosopher right. at, our, at all. You are. And I right. do not want to argue philosophy with you. <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm certainly not going to do that. I do, But just for the sake of the audience, I do want to ask a few questions about the argument as an argument, just from what you take, from what you see as Lewis's perspective, not, 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 not to argue with you about it, but to ask you a few things about it with respect to what you thought Lewis was getting at. Um, so one thing I wondered about, when the minute I read the argument, the one thing I wondered about was um, what so what did Lewis think was wrong with the lunatic option? Um, and here's my reason for asking this: It's very common to sort of when we're talking more realistically and less supernaturalistically 
to speak of the Hebrew prophets as sort of, you know, wandering lunatics, right? Um, um, that, that's, that's often, I've even heard people speculate that maybe they were schizophrenics or, or, yeah. or you know, heard voices. and say, what, does, what does Lewis say is wrong with the lunatic choice? Uh, I don't think he says anything about what's wrong with the choice. In, every time he brings up this argument, he doesn't really go into a, a big defense of it. And I would say that in his mind, if I may guess what was in his mind, yeah, of course, yeah, you, that someone who is a lunatic wouldn't be rational and wouldn't be worth listening to. Okay. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you, maybe this is this is something that he did talk about quite a bit in other things, he, other works of his. <clears throat> Isn't there a fourth option, um, which you mentioned yourself in the in the in the chapter, and that is. Couldn't couldn't Jesus as the Christ be a myth? In other words, um, something analogous to you know, a lot of historians will tell you that well, there probably was some Brit Britain chieftain that corresponds roughly to the person who the King Arthur myths were written about. But whoever that historical person was, he didn't he wasn't didn't do all the things and was the stuff in the King Arthur mythology isn't true, even though it's based on uh, perhaps a historical figure. Um, what what was Lewis's view on why we couldn't say that even if Jesus was you know a person and even if he was a, a let's say a wandering uh, uh, preacher, um, but that all the Christ stuff is mythology? Ah, uh, well, myth is an interesting word. Myth is a very 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 important concept to Lewis, and I think if you want me to talk about myth, I can talk about myth. But what Lewis the word that Lewis used for what you're talking about is a legend. That's fine. I don't care. That's to okay. me. I'm a little sloppy with these words, so um, I'm happy to go with legend. Uh, it, it's perfectly fits with what I just described. So, right. What's wrong right. with legend as an option? What's wrong with the legend option? Lewis, first of all, was a scholar of medieval and Renaissance literature. He was a literature guy. Mm -hmm. That was his specialty. That was what he was known for. That was what he was published in. And he had a very definite idea of how to define legend. And the biblical scholars of related but very different field had a different view of legend. Uh, when Lewis was writing, people like Martin de Balius and Rudolf Bultmann and some other biblical scholars would have been using the word legend. And they didn't mean what Lewis meant. And when they called the the stories about Jesus, legends, Lewis really got very prickly about it, particularly in an essay called Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism. It has another title, Fern, Seed, and Elephants. It's the same essay, two different titles. And they, they just kept talking past one another with this legend idea. But that's just one thing I want to say. Now I can address kind of the, the essence of your comment, the content as opposed to the verbiage. Uh, Lewis said that the stories about Jesus, the gospel stories about Jesus, didn't have the whiff or the smell of legend about them. They were written as history. He said, I know history when I see it. And this is written as history. This is not written as legend, like a King Arthurian legend would be. And he really liked the King Arthur legends, by the way. Yeah. Um, so he argued on the basis of literary genre, his understanding of literary genre, rather than ideas of history, if that makes sense. Yeah, so so um, that's that's very interesting for a number of reasons. Um, um, one reason that I'm interested in that is because um, evangelical apologists like William Lane Craig and others will often um, argue um, – using a kind of a literary analysis of the gospels that um that it's really history and not and not and not another genre and therefore must be true um what always puzzled me about that is that you know if you know anything about ancient historians like tacitus and some of these others they weren't doing history in the sense that modern people mean history um um and an off i mean one couldn't just simply read off of Cat tacitus or suetonius and, and say that, okay, well, we know that this happened and this happened and this happened because Suetonius says Livia poisoned so-and-so. Or mm -hmm. And so do you think Lewis wasn't aware of this 
Or do you think this is something where he just didn't want it to be true? Well, there, there's a yes and a no. Yes, he was completely aware of it. And in several places, he said, we, the, the ancients didn't write history the way we write history. And we cannot read uh, historians, Pastus and Suetonius, the way that we read histories today. But he did not ever apply that to the Gospels. Uh, Stays. Biblical scholars look at the gospel genre as being uh, B-oy. What does that mean? B-oy, the biography. Mm. You get biography from it. B-I-O-I, B-oy, the plural. Uh, so the genre of ancient biography has had a lot of study lately. And we know that ancient biographies were not considered to be factual history, uh, too. Right. But Lewis just seemed to have a blind spot there because he was perfectly aware of how ancient historians worked. He was a great classicist. Right. Fair enough. Um, 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 he was not a philosopher and, you know, he was to some degree an apologist. So we can we can give him a wide latitude, at least for the purpose of the discussion. Um, so let's get to the meat of it then, to the meat of your critique. Um, maybe start talking through some of the key elements of your analysis of why you think um, Lewis makes a basic mistake when he suggests that Jesus asserted that he was God or the Son of God or any of these locutions that would imply his divinity. Why don't you start with, go through your key points and whatever you think the most rational order is. Okay. Well, I think probably the best place to start is with the Synoptic Gospels versus the Gospel of John. And uh, God explain what the synoptic gospels are. Synoptic is sin with or together with optic to see. It means seeing things in the same way. And the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke see the life of Jesus in very much the same way. So they're called the synoptic gospels. Biblical scholars today, I'd say probably 90% of biblical scholars believe that Mark was written first and that Matthew and Luke used Mark to craft their narratives about Jesus. And Matthew and Luke each have their own unique perspectives on Jesus, but they followed Mark so much that the three Gospels can be seen together as a set. So we need to start there with the synoptic view of Jesus. And then once we get that down, we look at the very different view of Jesus that the Gospel of John has. And the Gospel of John is so different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that it's not considered one of the synoptic Gospels. Right. So go ahead. Why don't you start with um, talking about the evidence from Mark, uh, Matthew, and Luke regarding whether Jesus um, self-identified uh, as divine. So why I like you... said Mark, Matthew, Luke. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to stay, you know. Stay rigorous. Um, uh, <laughs> so go ahead and, and maybe talk a little bit about what the problem is with suggesting that Jesus self-identified as divine in those Gospels. Okay, one of the first places to start is that Lewis's argument necessitates that we only look at what Jesus said about himself. He said Jesus went about saying that he was God or the Son of God. So what other people say about him doesn't really matter. Right, because that doesn't make him a liar. That yeah. makes them liars, right? Not, <laughs> right. That doesn't make him a lunatic. That makes them yeah. lunatics, so right? So people call Jesus son of God and Messiah, that's not part of the equation. Right, that doesn't count, right? <laughs> so that's a good base point from which to go. Right. So uh, Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, which scholars consider the first one written, the earliest gospel written, and... Uh, in fact, we don't have any other biographical, let me restate, we have very little information about Jesus' life that's earlier than the Gospel of Mark, because Paul, who wrote before the Gospel writers did, had very little interest in Jesus' earthly life. He was right. interested more in the resurrected Jesus. So just to get that on the table. Right. Uh, in Mark, Jesus never calls himself God or the Son of God, and when other beings do by beings i mean the demons often will mm -hmm. say this when he's involved in casting out the unclean spirits uh when other beings do jesus immediately tells them to be quiet 
So not only does he not call himself these titles, but when other people do, he tells them to hush, hush, hush. Don't tell anybody about this. And that's called the Messianic Secret in Mark. It's a famous theme uh, brought out by a German scholar named Wilhelm Grede around the turn of the 20th century. So regardless of what you think of Rada's theory, which was under attack from the time that he wrote it, the messianic secret idea is absolutely clear in the Gospel of Mark. Is the impression that's given, I haven't read through the New Testament enough times to be familiar enough with it, remember, is the impression that's given when he when he shushes them, that he's shushing them because... Um, it's not true or that he's shushing them because this is something that's not supposed to be publicly known yet. (laughs) I don't think he's shushing them because he doesn't think it's true because right at the beginning of the gospel of Mark, um, if you read some of the oldest texts of the gospel of Mark says is the beginning of uh, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So if you take Mark 1.1 as including Son of God in the beginning, and that's a textual critical issue. Mm -hmm. Some of the old Greek manuscripts have it, some of them don't. Mm. Uh, Mark wants you to know right away that Jesus is the Son of God. And I think it's clear throughout the Gospel of Mark that Mark believes that Jesus is the Son of God and that he wants you, the reader, to know that Jesus is the Son of God. But again, it's a really different thing than Jesus going about saying that he is the Son of God. Right. And then you have to ask, what does it mean to be the Son of God anyway? Right, which we'll get to, and which I want you to talk about that, because that's very interesting and stuff that a lot of people probably don't know. Um, So does this carry on in Matthew and Luke? Is there also really a failure to self, sort of an absence of self-identification in Matthew and Luke as well, or are there some things there that are a bit more ambiguous? Uh, it, it mainly and generally carries on, but there are a couple of things in Matthew and Luke that are a bit more ambiguous. Uh, for instance, in both Matthew and Luke, Jesus has this uh, little monologue where he talks about how no one knows the Father but the Son and no one knows the Son but the Father. So obviously he's calling himself the Son of God there. Mm, okay. Okay, so... The, the 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 conclusion we draw from from this 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 bit is that in the in the in the synoptic gospels there isn't really any sort of direct clear self identification on Jesus's part of his divinity. However, one might say that there are things he says from which one could reasonably infer that he thought that about himself. Yes. Okay. Okay. So that's fine. Um. Let's now talk, and now this becomes really sort of a relevant point, and that is, um, even if he said it, did it mean what people like Lewis think it means? And so maybe now you can talk a little bit about what expressions like son of God and also uh, son of man, because he did identify himself explicitly as the son of man. Uh, 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 Maybe you could talk a little bit about um, what those sorts of expressions would have been taken to mean in the Hellenistic, the Hellenized Jewish world that Jesus had come come into? Okay. Should we explain Hellenism? Yeah, please. <laughs> okay. So, and, and maybe say a few things about its effect on Judaism. Because okay. I don't think pe- people know that, you know, Judaism now is the Judaism that came out of the rabbinical tradition. Some people know that that's the tradition that comes out of the Pharisaic tradition within Hellenistic Judaism, what people may not know is how many different kinds of Judaism there were in Hellenistic Judaism. And so maybe you could say a little bit about the, 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 more, the, the context in which we're talking. So Hellenized basically means Greek. Uh, and this form of Judaism comes directly out of the conquests of Alexander the Great, who died in the year 323. Alexander the Great, as a lot of people know, was great because he was such a conqueror. He was great for so many reasons, but he conquered a a great deal of the Mediterranean world all the way to India. Yeah. Yeah. So as he moved through these lands that he conquered, he spread Greek culture and language. And this is called Hellenization. So it took a little bit, but eventually... uh, the entire what we call the Greco-Roman world was Hellenized. 
And the Romans themselves were heirs of this Hellenistic system. And they had a great respect for Greek literature and art and, and philosophy. philosophy. Yeah. 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 And my students are always surprised when I say, even in the Roman world at the time of Jesus, if anyone wanted to communicate with anybody, they didn't use Latin, they used Greek. So we've got this Hellenized system here. So we call it Hellenistic Judaism from the time of Alexander the Great, who also conquered the land that we know Israel today, and uh, up through the Roman period. It's all Hellenistic Judaism. It's greatly influenced by Greek ideas, philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, and, and maybe say just a couple of things about the way in which the Hellenization of Judaism affected, in other words, how did, how did something like Christianity arise out of a Hellenized Judaism? What were some of the ideas? And because this is going to go directly to how people understood things like son of God, son of man, etc. Uh, how did that Hellenization play out in such a way? Um, within Judaism such that, A, you can get something like Christianity out of it, and B, how people would understand expressions like son of God, son of man, etc. Well, the most famous son of God would have been the Roman emperor. Uh, he was the guy who is known as the, the biggest, most important son of God in the Greco-Roman world. And, and the emperors were deified, right? I mean, I mean... Uh, it depends on which emperor, what time. Right. Hold on, you're just cutting out. Okay. Hold on, that's good. We're doing all right. It only happens a few times. Yeah, I was thinking that it looked better, actually. It did. It did. That's all right. Um, we only missed a tiny bit. So just, again, you said so, you were saying some emperors were deified, like Augustus was deified. Yes, after his death. Right. Um, uh, so this was, a, this was something that people would say about, about emperors sometimes, that they were okay. sons of God. And you think that that sort of seeps into that, that way of talking seeps into Ju certain, certain sects of Judaism? Some people think that it does. Yeah. Um, also it was a concept that was relevant in Judaism, uh, before Judaism was Hellenized. So maybe talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So there's, 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 there's stuff in the Tanakh. Um, yes. so maybe, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Cause that, that might be something that would, would make people help people to understand what it means in, in the new Testament. Okay. Uh, some people may have read the Hebrew scriptures, the, the Saul and David cycles, where the people are asking for a king. And there are different views in the scriptures about how, how and why they're asking for a king and how God reacts to it. In one of the streams, God said, well, you may want a king. I'll tell you, you're not going to be happy with it. You get it, but I'll, I'll give you one. <laughs> God, that's true, isn't it? Nation <laughs> here that God should be the king of Israel. So in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the king is seen kind of as as a viceroy or a deputy for God, and he is typically the son of God as well. And that expression is actually used. Yes, yes. You can see this in the Psalms, for instance. Uh, scholars will break up Psalms into different sort of subgenres, and there are royal Psalms that are being sung uh, on a king's coronation. And one of the most famous ones is, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Wow, so that's really language that sounds, resonates in the new, I mean, that's almost yes. straight. Um, right. Isn't that, only begotten son, only begotten son is, is, is one of the locutions that's used about Jesus r repeatedly. Right. Um, certainly by Christians, I hear it all the time. Right. Son. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what about son of man? Son of man. That is a really, really big topic right now and has been for decades in second temple Jewish studies. Uh, son of man is something that the gospel narrators attribute to Jesus. He seems to call himself this a lot. He means different things by it. Uh, How would that have been under, what are some of those things? How would people in that day have understood that expression? Okay, the simplest way that people would have understood it, we can see the most perhaps in the book of Ezekiel, where uh, 
God calls Ezekiel the prophet, one of these prophets that you were talking about that people thought was crazy, (laughs) even schizophrenic or epileptic. Uh, Not that schizophrenic or epileptic, I I don't want to get myself... No, we know what you mean. Nobody's going to attribute that to you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So God would call Ezekiel son of man over and over and over again. And what he means there basically is, hey, you human being, you're a human being. So, it's a romanticized way of saying human being, sort of. Yeah, yeah, it's just a, a, a different way of, of saying it. But then, as apocalyptic literature begins to develop, we have Son of Man being used in new ways. Uh, the most accessible one for most people, I think, would be in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, where there's one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And this figure receives power and kingdom and uh, and all, all sorts of stuff when he comes before God. So beginning with this kind of apocalyptic literature, the son of man becomes something more than just a human being. He is a heavenly figure, if I may use this word, I'm afraid to, because I'm not even really sure myself exactly how to define it, divine figure. I'm still working out exactly what divine means. In that context. I'm not ashamed to admit that. But at least a, a, a glorified heavenly figure. Uh, so let me so let me just just very quickly um just so people don't get lost so the son of man expression is pre-hellenic however it only takes on this more substantially supernaturalist connotation in the hellenic parts of the bible because daniel is a hellenic is a hellenic text yeah okay okay that's a fair summary of what you're saying okay we got it in ezekiel during the time of the exile Uh, 6th century BC and then in what some people would call the intertestamental period I'm only using that because a lot of people know the phrase it's gone dead out of fashion in biblical studies but it's actually pretty descriptive it's a good it's a good I think for ordinary talk it's a good word yeah 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 yeah. yeah. into issues of canon there and normative canon that didn't exist at the time it's a little anachronistic of a term because we didn't have testament at that time. Right, of course. So, okay, we need to stay on topic here, yes. not canon. Yes. Uh, yes. So, in this apocalyptic literature, like Daniel, that is being uh, written in the mid second century BC. No, you're, this, you're good. This figure of son of man takes on new connotations. So, when Jesus uses it. He uses it in both of these connotations. Sometimes it seems like he's just saying, okay, this human being, meaning me, but there is at least one time when he's really, really clearly quoting from Daniel chapter 7. And that time would be in the Gospel of Mark at his trial when the high priest is saying, are you the son of the blessed one? And he says, I am. And you will see the the son of man coming. Right, right, right. He is very much identifying himself there with the son of man. Now, but even with this Hellenized supernaturalist sense of son of man, that's not the same thing as saying that somebody's God. Right. Absolutely not. So no. we want to be clear that even if you get this much mileage, it's not getting you the mileage that Lewis needs to get. Is, is sort of what you're what you're what you're getting at. That's perfect. Right. That is absolutely perfect. Oh. Yes, because the Son of Man figure is always a subordinate figure to God, divine but not ontologically equal to God. Right. Right. Um, is there any part? Let me just ask you. And, uh, and if you don't have anything to say about this, it doesn't matter. But I'm just curious. Is there any parallel between this and sort of the Christian sort of innovation upon the Jewish concept of the Messiah? That is that a concept that started off as being relatively more mundane and terrestrial increasingly gets more supernaturalistically inflated until finally you get to Christianity and it's now 
God himself. Is that is that sort of a fair parallel to make? That's exactly what happens. Yeah. Sometime in the early second century, Son of Man begins a trajectory down to meaning Jesus as a human, and Son of God begins a trajectory up as meaning Jesus as a divine figure. So Right, yeah. okay. Okay, so in a sense, and is there any, do we know, is there anything, is this just, do you think, was this just a natural evolution out of the Hellenistic way of thinking about these things, or was there something distinctive to the, to the, 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 the Jewish Christians, so to speak, um, that caused them to push it all the way to the end? Or is this, for example, is this stuff that you would hear coming out of the mouths of, of Essenes or of any of the other sorts of, uh, uh, sects that we think of as closer maybe in a lot of ways to what would become Christianity, or is this something really unique to the new Testament? Oh, it's not unique to the new Testament at all. No, we, we see this language everywhere. Okay. Remember there's, well, I don't think we can really talk about Christianity as a separate group distinct from Judaism I, I don't want to put myself on the line here, at least up to the Jewish war, probably even later than that. The idea of the so-called parting of ways mm-hmm. between Christianity and Judaism, it's a big topic. When did it happen? Why did it happen? How did it happen? But uh, at least up until the, the great Jewish war of 66 to 70, we're not talking about a separate religion. We're talking about a sect of Judaism, right? Right. Um, so that's 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 great. That's very interesting. Um, so let's just sort of encapsulate this, and then we'll talk about. You should talk about John. So tell me if I've got your argument sort of right so far. Um, in the Synoptic Gospels, there is very little by way or to none of direct self-identification by Jesus as God. There are things he says that might indirectly suggest this. He does use expression son of man, which has this, which can have supernaturalist connotations. Um, and people say of him that he's uh, a son of God. Um, but what you want to say is that even if we take those expressions with their most supernaturalistic connotation, that's still not enough to get Lewis's Jesus says I'm God. Is, is exactly. that in a sense what you're saying? That is exactly what I'm saying. Okay, so now how does John fit into this picture? Okay, so John is not a synoptic gospel. And it's later than the other ones. It's dated uh, later. Yeah, standard biblical scholarship dates Mark around uh, 60s to 70. The other two synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, to the 80s, and John to the 90s somewhere. Okay. So it is later, but I do want to say that just because it's later, that in and of itself is is not an explanation for its higher Christology. It's seeing Jesus as being closer to God, because you can look at Paul, who is the right. earliest Christian writer, right, and it's right. very high Christology. Right, right, right. Well, more, yeah, the only, only, the only reason I mentioned it's dating is because if Mark is the earliest and then we take Mark as a source for Matthew and Luke and John is the latest, it is the furthest away from Mark. Right. I mean, in the sense of, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and so the, it does reflect some kind of evolution, right? Um, um, okay. So what is it about? So how does, what is a, what does Jesus say about himself and John? What use can Lewis make of that, and why doesn't that help Lewis either, I guess is what I'm asking you. Well, this actually helps Lewis more than other things. Okay. Uh, In the Gospel of John, we immediately see much higher Christology right from the beginning, where the author says, in the beginning was the Logos, and that is typically translated word in English translations. But Logos has a huge, huge realm of meaning around it that had gone on for a long time from the Stoic philosophy that you know of. Right. I think is is important in here. 
And that also influenced people like Philo of Alexandria, the great Jewish philosopher who was an exact contemporary of Jesus, though he had a longer life than Jesus. He was born before Jesus and died about hmm, maybe 10 years after Jesus. So Philo saw the Logos as being a principle that was very, very close to God, uh, just like the Stoics did. So Jesus never calls himself the Logos or the Word, but right from those first several words in the Gospel of John, we see this is going to be different. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, the way most English translations have it now, and the Logos was God. So we have an identification here. The Logos was God, and in this Gospel, Jesus will say, for instance, the Father and I are one. Uh, and he will say, before Abraham was, I am, making himself pre-existent, which is something, which is a word that Lewis does use. Uh, what is that? What, can you explain what that means and, and uh, what that means and what the significance of that is? What's this? Yeah. I guess I'm asking, what is the significance of him saying he's pre-Abraham? Mm -hmm. um, because there's an awful lot of history before Abraham. Exactly. Um, we go through the whole world getting blown up, you know, destroyed once already, right? I mean, you know, I mean, you know, uh, 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 Noah's pre-Abraham. So, so what, what, what is the significance of that? Pre saying I'm pre-Abraham, I existed pre prior to Abraham. Okay, I need to introduce another concept here too, and that's the concept of wisdom, the Greek word Sophia. So people will either use wisdom or Sophia, they're the same thing. In the Proverbs, which is in the Tanakh, right? Yep, that's right. To the Hellenistic age. Yep. Uh, the Proverbs has Sophia speaking in the first person. Yeah, wisdom's personified. Wisdom is yeah. personified, and she's saying that before anything was, she existed. She was the first of God's creation. Wisdom was. Right. And Philo... And other, uh, well, I'll just stick with Philo. Philo identifies wisdom and the Logos. So there's a lot of fertilization of thought here. Right. About pre-existent figures called wisdom, called the Logos. The wisdom and the Logos are, are very closely connected. And, by the way, in the Apocalypse 1 Enoch, uh, the Son of Man is also pre-existent. God had hidden him away before he made everything else and was going to reveal him at a certain time. But is the, is the idea of pre-existence considered a, a sort of a, um, a characteristic that indicates divinity? Is that, is, that, is that the significance of it? What's the significance of it? It depends on how we define divinity. I always keep coming back to that. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Because for the Jew, for the Jews, um, that those lines in Proverbs are understood as meaning that as Torah, right? Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. And so that's not a person. I mean, it's personified and interestingly personified as a woman, right? right. Um, but it's not taken by Jews literally as meaning that it's actually a person, but it's simply um, a, a characterization of Torah um, right. um, um, that, in a sense, law, the law existed before it was given at Sinai, right? Exactly. Um, um, so, but how would how, what was the significance for Christianity for, for 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 the writers of the New Testament? What would that have meant? What's the significance of a pre-existent claim? A pre-existent claim here, uh, as it develops later on, would be that there is some kind of being who is with God before the beginning of creation. So then why wouldn't he say, I was prior to Adam? Why would he say, I'm prior to Abraham? <laughs> Good question, because Abraham is the father of the Jews. Yeah, but he's late, man. I mean, there's a lot of people before him. Uh, you know, Noah's the father of humanity. You know, why wouldn't he say, I'm prior to Noah, right? Yeah. Uh, do we know this, or is this just, uh, do we know why, or is it just, we don't? In the Gospel of John, uh, John uses a lot of figures. Jesus is also compared to Moses. Uh, oh, I see. Abraham, and uh, so yeah. big, big, big shots in a sense. You know, he's yeah. That makes that makes sense. Okay. 
So, so Jesus says these things about himself in the Gospel of John. So why isn't that enough for Lewis? Why can't say, okay, my case is, you know, my, as long as the logic of the trilemma works, there's nothing wrong with my first premise, and that is that Jesus called himself God. What's wrong with it? What's wrong? Why is John not good enough? Why is John not good enough? Okay. Well, here, uh, it, it basically is not the same Jesus as the synoptics. We cannot have... You think, you, you're, you're, in the sense that you're saying that John cannot even be reasonably claimed to be historical at all? And the, is that what this is going to come down to, that the synoptics at least have some claim to being historical and... and John does not, or is there something else going on here that I'm not getting? Okay. Um, there was, and maybe among some scholars still is, an idea that John may be completely worthless in terms of history. A group of scholars that you'll find claiming that, or very close to that, would be the public statements of the group called the Jesus Seminar. Yeah. A lot of might be familiar with yeah Robert Price and a number of others I think uh, John Dominic Cross yeah 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 yes yeah so uh, there's a lot of diversity within the Jesus seminar but in the public statements of the Jesus seminar and in some of its most prominent figures they will say John is, is basically worthless historically um, but I would say, no, John is not worthless historically, or to put it positively, there are things in John you could definitely uh, take as historical. We can get into a different conversation about what it means to take something as historical. I understand, yeah. But uh, So then what is your argument? I mean, because the conclusion I got from your chapter was that Lewis's first premise is fundamentally flawed. But if you don't agree that sort of John is completely worthless, then what do you mean when you say that Jesus and John is not the Jesus and Mark and Matthew and Luke? I didn't quite understand that then. Sure. Okay, that's a good question. Uh, the Christology of the synoptics is basically that Jesus did not go about saying that he was God or the Son of God, and that when he did, he told people, or when, when anyone called him that, he asked them to be quiet. The Christology of the Gospel of John, on the other hand, is exactly the opposite. John goes about not only accepting these titles, as we can see right from the very beginning of the Gospel of John when he calls his disciples. Uh, they call him by various names, and Jesus accepts them all. And then he himself says things like, the Father and I are one, and... Uh, so on and so forth. So in my opinion, and I'm open to argument on this, definitely, uh, in my opinion, you can't have the same figure doing both things. And so, yeah, so there's a contradiction, right? Yeah. Um, um, the question then is, why do you privilege the picture of Jesus that's in the synoptics as opposed to John? That's why I asked you about the question of historicity, right? Um, there must be some reason why you're probably, and that's also why I mentioned that John is later. Is it partly because John is later? And so there's a kind of a, a credibility to the, to the synoptics that there isn't a time? Or what is your reason for privileging the, 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 the synoptic version? And my reason for privileging the synoptic version would be that even though the synoptic version of Jesus would not be a videotape or a photograph of Jesus, we can't take it as being flat-footedly, literally what Jesus said and did, I would say that it's closer to what the real historical man Jesus said and did than the Gospel of John. On what basis? And, you know, you could be from a general, but I don't expect you to go into all the details, but generally speaking, on what basis would you, do, do, do you think that as a, as, a, as a historian and a scholar yourself? What, what Mm -hmm. I would say that the, the Gospel of John would be more a reflection on the significance of who people are seeing Jesus to be. I, here's why I'm asking, because the Pauline literature is earlier than all of it. Mm -hmm. And there it's full-blown Christ, God, all that sort of stuff. It is. So given that it's the earliest, why wouldn't one say, 
Well, John is probably the right one because he's reflecting what the earliest Christian literature we have says. And maybe all the stuff in the synoptics is just biography that nobody has, but we wish we had. And so we just made up a whole bunch of stuff about this guy's life. But really, the only the earliest things that we know about him is that he's God. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know of anybody, any Christian anyway, who would say that the synoptic stuff would be just stuff that you no, make up? No, of, of course not. No, I'm asking this from the sort of from playing history, sort of. Yeah, um, yeah. And many Christians, I think, do say that. And uh, I, I believe that though Lewis did not say this in any way, he himself is doing it. Does he and, use John more than the synoptics in his arguments? Um. I would have to go back and, you know, count the scripture references. What's your impression? I mean, I don't expect you to do that. My impression would be that he's about half and half. But the thing is, his unconscious mindset is definitely reading the synoptic gospels through the lens of John. Uh, And many, many Christians do that up to the very highest Christians. Uh, Could get myself in hot water here, but... Benedict the 16th came out with a couple of books on Jesus and Benedict is a fine scholar uh, in his days as Cardinal Ratzinger for that. But it was very interesting how, when he tried to read the synoptics, he read them with a mindset or a lens. Like if you want to call John rose colored glasses, perhaps he's reading them through the rose colored glasses of the gospel of John. And it's something that is so endemic to Christians because Christians want to see Jesus as he is portrayed in the Gospel of John. Since the Christological councils have defined him uh, as one in being with the Father. Okay. We get the closest to that in the Gospel of John. Um, So let me ask you, I mean, we do, you know, we're not, we're certainly not going too long. So let me ask you maybe to talk a little bit about the way we use the new Testament to tell us about historical matters. Um, you know, if I was to ask you, um, why, you know, somewhere in the chapter, I think you said that we can reasonably think that some of the things that the gospel says about Jesus are, are historical, that they really, that they really occurred. If I was to push you and say, well, actually, why would I, why should I think that? Um, um, why should I actually think that there was any such historical person at all, given that aside from the New Testament and maybe a reference in the Mishnah, um, uh, where, where it's not even clear that it's the same person, um, we don't have any, I mean, Philo never mentions him and he's a contemporary, um, um, uh, the stuff that's in, uh, what's his face? Josephus is largely believed to be added afterwards. Um, why, why should that, that's what I'm, that's, that's what, that's what the scholarship I've heard says that, that, yeah. that those are later editions in Josephus. Um, why should I think other than people saying, well, it's not the genre of myth. It's, it's not written like myth. What reason should I have for thinking that any of it's true or that Jesus existed at all as a historical figure? Okay. Well, let's start with your sources here. Um, in addition to the Mishnah, we have several references from Roman historians speaking about the first century. Could you say, just say who? Because this is interesting for the audience. So who, 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 who mentions Jesus other than uh, the Mishnah and the New Testament? What Roman sources? And Suetonius. Tacitus and Suetonius. Yes. Okay. Now, admittedly, both of them are writing in the second century, but they're writing about the first century. Okay. So we have two uh, two separate incidences. One of them speaking about the great fire of Rome and the persecution of the Christians in the aftermath of the great fire of Rome, and another one speaking about Claudius expelling the Jews from Rome in the year forty nine. Claudius, uh, uh, it's it's about a certain Crestus, mm. and most people think that this is upsets or a fracas about Christ. So those are the two references that we have from that are outside the New Testament. Yeah. Do, the, is there archaeological evidence? 
Well, depends on who you ask, right? So people who say there is, what do they point to typically? What do they point to? Well, I can't say that we have any archaeological evidence that points directly to Jesus, but we have archaeological evidence that backs up things. Stuff that's in the gospel narratives. Okay. I think that this is very interesting, and you know, I could do an entire separate dialogue with you on this because I think that people don't don't know how ancient history is done. I know. Um, and what kind of evidence there is. You know, it's a very different thing to say Winston Churchill existed as it is to say that Socrates existed, right? Exactly. Um, and so I think it's really important that people understand what kinds of claims ancient historians are making and what kinds of levels of epistemic certainty attached to the sorts of claims they're making. Um, um, but that's, you know, beyond the beyond our scope today. Um, so... To, I mean, when you use the Gospels as a historical source to try and make base to base claims upon which um, uh, people should think that, G, that the historical Jesus did or said various things, how do you parse it? I mean, how do you how do you make use of the text mm-hmm. as a historical document? Okay, there's there have been a bunch of criteria that have been developed over the last. Uh, number of decades. And I even teach these to my freshmen in my introductory New Testament courses. Um, First of all, you start with the accepted notion of the synoptic problem, that we've got these gospels that all say different things about Jesus, and that three of them at least Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a literary relationship with one another, and it seems most likely in most cases that Mark is the first one. Uh, and then you you look at other sources that you might have that would be independent references to things, and you need to look at each question specifically, sometimes down to the very word. Uh, the more specific and precise you can be in asking your question, the more you can do with it. So, for instance, I'm having my students right now write a paper using the criteria of the historical Jesus on whether or not the real man Jesus, as opposed to the gospel writers who wrote about him, said that Jesus disapproved of divorce and remarriage. So all three of the synoptic gospels have Jesus saying that uh, if one spouse divorces another, that it's a bad thing for them to get remarried. Interestingly, Paul also reflects this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I believe that most scholars would say that Paul is an independent source. Paul wouldn't have read the Gospels. Because he's earlier than the Gospels. earlier than the Gospels. Did the Gospel writers, would the Gospel writers have read Paul? Uh, That is up for debate. I think it's quite possible that they would have. Uh, but let me just continue on with yeah, go ahead, go ahead. historical Jesus. Yeah. So we look at how many independent sources we can see back up the same thing. And for instance, let, this is a, a big, big issue. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to get you into too much detail. Yeah. So what you're saying essentially is the way we use the New Testament historically is that those parts of, let's say, the synoptics for which there are other corrob- external corroborations are, 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 in a sense, our, our light posts, right? Those are the places in which we, we feel like we can use the material in there uh, to make some sort of historical claims, hesitant, but, his, but historic, at least historically hesitant um, sorts yeah. of claims. Is that but, basically? Yeah, that's, a, that's it. Yeah. And, and not only literary sources like Josephus or Paul, but also uh, other factors. For instance, there's something called the criterion of dissimilarity. And uh, scholars of the historical Jesus used to sort of crown this as their most important criterion. It's since come under fire. But I'll just give you a a little illustration of it as my students might use it in their paper. I hope none of my students are watching because their paper isn't due yet. (laughs) (laughs) So we know that Judaism always allowed divorce and remarriage, right? From before the time of Jesus, Jesus actually quotes uh, Moses. He says, you know that Moses says, give her a writ of divorce. And up until today. 
And we also know that when Matthew modifies Mark's saying, Mark says basically no divorce and remarriage. Matthew says no divorce except in cases of porneia. Porneia having to do with sexual immorality. So that we know that if Mark was written first and Matthew came later, that between the writing of Mark and Matthew, people who are reading this gospel are feeling really uncomfortable with a prohibition against right. divorce, separation, and remarriage. They want some but exceptions. <laughs> exceptions. And you know what? These guys who wrote the gospels could have left that out if they had wanted to, yeah. but they feel the necessity of putting it in. So if it goes against a Christian agenda, but it's so important that the gospel writers feel obliged to put it in, then that also adds evidence to the hypothesis that the historical Jesus actually said it. Does right. that make sense? Sure, sure. No, that, that, that makes perfect sense. I, I, I can see that. Um, Great. So the last thing I have to ask you is, um, what's what do you take the significance of the poverty of the 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 the, the liar the liar lunatic or lord argument to be? In other words, why why did it matter to you to show that this was not a very good argument? What's what's the bigger picture? Why, why does this matter? Other than as a matter of interest for. Lewis aficionados or for people who are deeply buried in uh, attempts to sort of, uh, you know, apologic apologetics. apologetics. What's yeah. your, what's your reason? Why do you think it's significant to show that this argument's not so hot? First, let me tell you why it's not significant for me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, I am not trying to prove that he's, Jesus isn't God. Right. Cause you I'm, think he is. So I mean, it's not, yeah. I, I'm an Orthodox Christian who accepts the priesthood. Right, right. So that's secondly, not the reason. <laughs> secondly, it's not because I dislike Lewis. I absolutely love C.S. Lewis, and he's a vital part of my life from almost the time I can remember. Me too, I should say. Uh, yeah. The Narnia Chronicles had an enormous effect on me as a child, even as a very Jewish child in a very Jewish home. I mean, it's just wonderful children's literature, right? I mean, it's... It's it's the best amongst amongst the top five best children's books, right? You completely froze up on me there, but I think yeah, I got the. You froze up on me too, so I'll just say it again, um, just very quickly. Even as a hot child growing up in a very Jewish home, Lewis was important to me because, uh, as children's literature. Yes. As beautiful children's literature, um, with a lot of very good messages in it. Uh, that are good messages, whether they're Christian or not. <laughs> so, so he's important to you. You're not trying to diss him. You're not trying to throw him under the bus. So then, what is your reason for not trying to throw God under the bus? <laughs> right, right. What is? What do? You, why do? You, why is it important to you to show the argument's not good? As a biblical scholar, it's it's a bad biblical argument. And I, of course, I'm teaching biblical studies to. 18-year-olds who show up in my class to 75-year-olds who audit my class. And I just don't like the misunderstandings about history and scripture that the argument entails. I guess I could quote N.T. Wright. Uh, N.T. Wright, former Anglican Bishop of Durham in England, uh, a believing Christian, obviously, I would hope, from being a bishop, and uh, a, a great biblical scholar, who says that someone who knew their biblical scholarship, their ideas about Jesus through the liar, lunatic, Lord argument, would be in a very bad position even when confronted with just basic historical literary ideas about the Bible and Jesus, much less... The, the sort of folks that you're talking about who would deny that Jesus even existed as a human being. Is there a, let me ask you just, so, so it, at, at, a, at, a, at a basic level, it offends you as a biblical scholar. You don't like to see people misuse the text and misunderstand what, what the text says. Um, um, and I should probably point out that the school we teach in, we're, we're in a region that is very, very heavily evangelical. And so it's especially probably important to you 
that these kids who are coming in already with very preconceived ideas about Christianity, about Jesus, and about the text become educated readers of the texts. Um, um, but is there, let me ask you this, is, is there anything a little deeper? In other words, do you dislike this sort of, these sort of attempts to, to, to use the text for these kinds of apologetics that in a sense to do these sorts of proofs, um, do, do you object to that more generally? Um, um, in, in, in the sense that that's not really the proper place from which belief, religious belief should come. Or do you not go that deep? Is it just, I'm a biblical scholar and I hate bad biblical scholarship. <laughs> well, I'll agree with your last sentence there. As for the other piece, I think apologetics can be well done and very valuable and poorly done and uh, backfire. It, it really depends on how it's done. And so, so when apologetics involves abusing the text, you don't like it. <laughs> I, I don't go there. No, it's interesting that even Lewis himself uh, wrote a poem about the dangers of such apologetics. What's the poem? I wish I had it memorized. You don't have to have it memorized. You can provide it as a, one of the things that will go up as a link section. And I have, I'm going to ask you to provide links. So if you can find it at some point, it'd be great. Yeah. But he wrote a poem about bad apologetics. He did. And, you know, I think in the version of it that I gave you, it's 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 in, in there. I've got a copy of the paper here in front of me, but it's not the latest version, so I can't read it. It's called something like an, Apo an apologist Sunday prayer. And he's saying about his apologetics. Are, are we frozen up? No, we're good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Well, angels weep, the audience laughs. He says, preserve me from, from stuff like this. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, it's just wonderful. He is completely aware of the dangers of glib apologetics that go over really well with the audience, but don't capture the spiritual meaning. And that is just so endearing to me. And yet he was a pro at that kind of, that kind of catchy apologetics. That's, that's, yeah. fasc that's yeah. fascinating. One of the things you have to love about Lewis is that he was such a humble, humble man. Uh, he really honestly fought against pride and uh, all of the things that came along with being a world famous apologist. I, I honestly think that if he were a Roman Catholic, he would be a candidate for canonization. Really? Yes, I do. But Chesterton isn't. Chesterton's a better apologist than Lewis. No, no, not at all because of his apologists. I, I, I actually, you know, I disagree with his most famous apologetic argument. It's his humility. Oh, you mean him, his, his character. His character. Yeah, 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 yeah. I understand. Um, I should say Chesterton is another favorite of mine. Yes. Um, but partly as a st the stylist, the man is one of the greatest English stylists I think I've ever read. Um, just he had sentences that just <laughs> were incredible. And these turnarounds, these almost like judo kind of sentences that were just wonderful. Like a paradox. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, Leslie, thank you so much. This was really interesting. <laughs> And, and not typically the sort of thing that I've been doing. I've been doing mostly philosophy, so it's really uh, a refreshing change, and I think the audience will love it. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for asking me. It's been a real pleasure to have this time to spend with you. And if I could come up with something else that I know enough about to talk to you about, I'm going to ask you to do another one. So. I would be happy to do that. All right, Leslie. Thank you so much.